the author H.G. Wells, and then later the politician Woodrow Wilson, described World War I as the war to end all wars. On September 30th, 1938, then British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain returned to England, held up a copy of the Munich Agreement, which ceded the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia to Nazi Germany, and he said these famous words, something like, we have achieved peace for our time. Well, spoiler alert, they had not. Less than a year later, September 1939, obviously Hitler's Germany invaded Poland and officially started World War II. And I think this is an important point to realize that as much as we all long for peace, as much as we celebrate people who bring peace and award them with Nobel Prizes, true peace, true lasting peace is an incredibly elusive thing. And that's what I want to come to this morning in this final of four sermons on our longings. We looked at justice and freedom We've looked at identity last week. This morning, we come to the longing for peace. And I want to begin with a question, and that is, when you think of peace, what are the first two or three words that come to mind? Or what I really mean is, like, what are the first two or three concepts of what peace means to you? So as you sit there and you're longing for peace in your own life, what is it that you're really longing for? I think peace has many dimensions. It has this element of, I want, we would even say, I want peace and quiet. In other words, I want serenity. I want tranquility. I just want an end to the noise. I want to be able to rest. And some of you would just literally mean by peace, I just, I just need to rest. I just want literal quiet. Some of you are thinking more of probably a, a safety, a security of feeling like you are taken care of. That your, your life, your health is not in jeopardy. And that goes along with what you would think of as peace. Some of you are thinking of harmony. Like the removal of some kind of conflict in your life. Or even reconciliation. Meaning the restoration of a relationship that needs some kind of restoration. Needs to be put back together again. And that, that kind of peace in a relationship. Some of you are thinking of contentment satisfaction, fulfillment, like that kind of peace. Some of you may even be thinking of prosperity, wealth, welfare. And this morning I'm going to use the word peace, which is an English word, and the word shalom, a Hebrew word, somewhat interchangeably. But I love this Hebrew word shalom because in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, and as the Jews would greet one another with this word shalom, they literally mean all of that. It is an incredibly comprehensive word representing an incredibly comprehensive peace on all these different levels of your life. You could say shalom is a total sense of wholeness or well-being. So in the Old Testament, you know, when we are to seek the shalom of the city, for example, and of course that was spoken to Israel going into bondage in Babylon for 70 years, it was you're, you're to seek this holistic health and welfare and reconciliation and harmony and the ending of noise and the ending of conflict on behalf of other people, okay? Now, we always long for that kind of shalom. My guess is that this year in particular, 2020, 
your awareness of that longing may be a little heightened. Some of you may not even remember because March led us right into a pandemic which turned so many different levels of all of our lives upside down, thrust us into layers of confusion and conflict and frustration that we are not accustomed to. And we may have already forgotten that 2020 led off with a presidential impeachment trial. Conflict. As the year went on and we had riots and racial tensions and social tensions and ethnic tensions and financial tensions and people are losing their jobs by the tens of millions and there's financial strain. And then we come into the, the, the fall months and there's a heightened election and political polarization We are, again, profoundly aware of the fact that we are not a people and we are not a culture at peace, but we want to be. We long to be. And I would say if you're feeling this morning an absence of, you know, emotional calm or mental health, if you're feeling an absence, many of you, of financial peace or vocational peace because you're you're struggling there. Or some of you would even just say, literally, I I feel a, a physical unrest or spiritual conflict in my life. I'm not spiritually at peace. I'm not at peace with God. Well, you know how these things snowball on you, that if you feel unrest or conflict in one or two areas of your life, that stress from another area immediately just kind of collects on that, and it just gets bigger and bigger, and it just immediately is out of control, and you just feel like, my entire life is filled with conflict and frustration And confusion. And so I want to talk to us this morning about seeking ultimately this peace in God. And before I get to that point, as we've been doing, I want to just heighten your awareness of a couple problems with the way that we generally go about seeking peace for ourselves, peace even for others, for our culture. Um, And I want to begin that by saying that your longings for harmony, for serenity, for a reconciliation of a relationship... Your longing to feel safe and secure. I would say even your longing for a sense of welfare, like you're taken care of, you're doing okay. Those are not inherently bad longings. The reality is you were made in the image of God. God is a God of order and peace. And so many of these things are actually a reflection of God's own heart. And we know looking forward to the end of the story, when God comes again, when Jesus returns, we will have peace. So the fact that you long for these things doesn't make you necessarily like a bad or selfish person. But I do want to point out a couple dangers. The first of these dangers, the first problem is that we often pursue peace as an end unto itself. Okay? And what I mean is we, we look at our lives, we have all this existential turmoil going on, mental, spiritual, emotional, relational, and we're like, I want peace. And so what do we do? We pursue peace. It's like, if I don't have peace and I want peace, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to focus on pursuing peace, which means I eliminate or at least avoid sources of conflict in my life. And before you know it, peace is an idol. Peace is a God that you serve. It becomes the litmus test for how you make decisions. And nobody said this to me super recently, and I'm not jumping your case if you're like, man, I literally just said that to my wife this morning. But what I mean by litmus test is how many times in Christian culture do you hear these kinds of phrases thrown out? Somebody makes a decision. Maybe you are asking a friend, like, why did, why did you do that? And they're like, well, just, God just gave me such a peace about it. Right? You've heard that? 
Or conversely, someone doesn't do, do something and they, they may say, you know, I, I, just, I just wasn't at peace about that. And usually, by the way, what they mean is I didn't feel a subjective emotion of peace. Like my, my thoughts weren't at peace. Okay? And that, that can be okay. That, that can be very dangerous when you're seeking peace just for the sake of peace. Because what happens is I didn't have peace about it becomes justification for everything you don't do. I, this does bring peace becomes the justification for everything you do. So, you know that toxic person in your life that always seems to stir up conflict for no reason? They're gone from your life. And the challenging circumstances that stretch you beyond your comfort zone, they're gone from your life. And things that bring you the potential for physical or financial discomfort, they're gone from your life. And this just becomes like, I'm just seeking peace for the sake of peace because I want to be at peace. And I want you to understand that almost every worldview out there is pursuing peace as the ultimate goal. It's, at the, it's the end in, unto itself. I mean, I, I wrote down just like the top five worldviews in our culture, our Western progressive culture right now. And I want to just illustrate this for you with these. So naturalistic scientism would say that superstition is the source of conflict in society. Okay, everything needs to be rational. Everything needs to be scientific. Everything needs to be empirical. You have to be able to prove everything. And the problem is these people that believe these religions and fairy tales and stories, and they have this wondrous imagination that spiraled out of control, and that superstition is creating all kinds of conflict. So you get rid of that. You get rid of superstition. A second worldview is environmentalism, which would say the exploitation the misuse of, sometimes the overuse of natural resources is what's creating the conflict. So we get rid of the exploitation and the exploiters. Free market capitalism says that scarcity is the problem and it's creating conflict. And so the solution is you get rid of scarcity, you get rid of conflict, everybody's going to be fine. Postmodernism says that traditional values are the problem. Okay, postmodern, we're beyond modern, we're beyond traditional and people who still cling to these ancient, closed-minded beliefs are creating all kinds of conflict for everyone else. We need to get rid of that kind of thinking. And then one final one is secular pluralism, which would say that intolerance is what's causing conflict in our society. And the solution is we just all need to be tolerant. And then our conflict would be gone and we'd all be at peace. We'd all believe differently. We'd think differently. We'd act differently. But at least we'd have peace. And since peace is the ultimate goal of all these worldviews, then the boogeyman is like whatever takes that peace. And so you look at that person or you look at that thing or you look at that idea that you disagree with and you say, that right there is the problem with our society. Okay? And you see these people, you see these ideas becoming demonized or villainized and there's a philosophy out there that you have to either be converted to think like us or you have to be silenced. If you're not willing to convert, we're going to silence your voice. Now, I'll come back to this, but peace is not an end unto itself. It is a byproduct of a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Okay? It cannot be achieved in any permanent or lasting or comprehensive sense apart from a personal relationship with God through Jesus. 
So that's, that's kind of the first problem. This, this leads quickly to two others that are related to it. So I said, we pursue peace as an end unto itself. Then number two, second related problem is then we latch on to partial or false solutions. So because we say people who are superstitious are the problem, well, if, if we really believe that, then we're going to latch on to a solution that is not comprehensive. So let's use the example of secular pluralism where tolerance is king. And we say, okay, what's the solution to our peace problem, according to a secular pluralist? Well, you just convince everyone to tolerate everyone else's beliefs. You know, slap the coexist bumper sticker on your Prius, post stuff like live and let live on your social media, and boom, peace. But if you deconstruct that for a moment, and I'm going like, to just take the coexist bumper sticker. So you know that represents seven religions, seven worldviews. Islam, secular humanism, Hinduism, Judaism, paganism, Taoism, and Christianity. And I'd love to have a conversation with the people with the coexist bumper sticker. I mean, in theory, it sounds great, right? And in theory, I get behind it. Like, that sounds great. I'm not going to force you to convert to my beliefs in Christ. So let's just live parallel lives. But if you study the, the tenets and the history of these different religions, and this is just seven of thousands of religions you understand they don't simply hold parallel beliefs. They hold mutually exclusive beliefs about some really important things, meaning not everyone can be right. Someone's right and someone's wrong. So how do you tolerate when it's like, well, going back to science and objectivity, one of these things is correct. Some of these things are not correct. That's a problem in and of, it, in and of itself. But then you've got another problem, which is that a couple of these religions, one of their basic convictions is you convert or you die. So how do you coexist with that? And people who try to coexist with that, especially in foreign countries, in third world countries, end up dead or persecuted. Okay? Now, we don't have that kind of issue anywhere on that level in the United States, but even in a progressive urban culture like Denver, how does the tolerance of secular pluralism actually play out? You know, you, you'll see if you think thoughtfully about what's going on, it's actually not that tolerant at the end of the day. It simply creates a new system of beliefs and values, a new definition of this is right and this is wrong. And it basically says everyone needs to convert to the new set of values and beliefs. And if you don't, you're what's wrong with our culture. You're the problem. Okay? And we literally have something called the culture wars in a secular pluralistic society. War. Someone's winning. Someone's losing. Someone's getting hurt. And the idea is if you don't openly affirm and support and celebrate the new ideas, the new values, it's not that you just literally just tolerate them and say, I disagree with you, but I love you for Christ's sake. I will serve you as a neighbor. That's not good enough. You have to also say, I agree with you. I celebrate everything that you celebrate. And by the way, the whole cancel culture movement, ironically, is coming out of secular pluralism. The idea that if you ever did anything intolerant in your past, even when history and culture was completely different and had completely different values, then we won't tolerate you. We'll cancel you. We'll get rid of the idea of you. So again, I, I think tolerance sounds great in theory, 
Because as Christians, we, we, are, we are offering people a free gift of God's grace. We are not saying convert or die. We're not saying you are forced to believe what I believe because forced belief is not belief at all. It's not repentance and trust. So the idea of tolerance, we're like, great. But in practice, it's a partial or false solution, just one of many. And then the third problem, and again, related to the first two now, is that we create new conflicts in our quest for peace. And you see this every four years or every two years, depending on the election, is like, let's just vote for a completely different politician. Let's flip parties. And of course, the new party is saying, all this conflict from the last four years, it's that guy. It's that woman. It's that politician. It's that party. Trust us, and we will bring unity. And then as soon as they have the position, you listen to their first speech, and you're like, wow, that was incredibly divisive. Did you guys listen to that? That was incredibly divisive. That was not unifying. That was not harmonious. That was not peace and life-giving. It was just more conflict. So we've created a new conflict in the quest for peace. Or, again, secular pluralism tolerates everything except the person who doesn't tolerate everything. Right? We will tolerate everything except you, as a Christian, draw certain boundaries like, well, this isn't true. This isn't good. This isn't healthy. This does not correspond with the reality of your identity in Christ. And so I'm against certain things. I'm for certain things. And they would say, well, then you're the problem. You know, capitalism has tried so many different ways to resolve the conflicts of society by saying, in the place of scarcity, we'll give you all kinds of opportunity. But then what does it do? This, this false or partial solution Brings things like winners and losers. I mean, I, from what I understand, Amazon's doing pretty good right now. Like, really good. And a lot of small businesses have, have failed. And small business owners have nothing. Capitalism creates winners and losers. It, it stokes the fires of jealousy and greed and envy in an effort to bring an end to conflict. Environmentalism. I mean, lots of things that as a Christian conservationist, I would agree with. Yes, let's steward this one earth that God has given us. That's right there at the beginning of Genesis. The, the mandate to Adam and Eve to take care of this place that God has put them. So that's a good thing. But we say, okay, let's stop exploiting these natural resources. Let's, you know, let, let's make cars unaffordable for half of the population of our country when we already have an affordable housing crisis, then we put an affordable transportation crisis on top of that. And by the way, just switching everyone to electric cars, which is great, it sounds great. Where do you think that electricity comes from? We're going to need a lot more electricity to fuel all these electric-powered cars. What, what do you think creates that electricity in the first place? See, and again, my, my point is not that these are bad things. My point is that we have all these different partial solutions, and if we're like, that's it, that's the thing, we're just creating new conflicts. And by the way, the Old Testament prophets now, going to the Word of God, Jeremiah 8, verse 11, they speak to this very kind of problem. And God rebukes them and says, you are healing the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And I love that phrase, you are healing the wound of my people lightly. You're putting a band-aid on a hemorrhage, is what he's saying. And he says, when, when you declare peace 
as if it's some kind of comprehensive piece and we've barely bandaged a hemorrhaging wound. Do not say as a prophet of God that we've brought peace because the solution is found somewhere else. In a most interesting text, Ezekiel 13. You love Ezekiel, right? There's all these weird stories in Ezekiel, but this is one of them where instead of just saying you're offering people a false hope, here's what God says. He's like, prophets of Israel, here's what you're doing wrong. Religious leaders of my people, here's what you're doing wrong. Okay, we got this wall that's crumbling, and that's your society because there's all this conflict. There's all this turmoil from without, from within. You do not have peace. And he's like, here's what you're doing. You're coming along and you're smearing a layer of whitewash on the wall and you're saying, we're good. And in Ezekiel 13, God says, I'm going to come and just knock your wall down and say, how's that whitewash working out for you? See, the Old Testament prophets are are addressing a similar problem of maybe even well-intentioned people that are like, wait, pastor, you saying that peace is a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. What I'm saying is don't pursue partial and phony solutions to a real problem because it's like smearing a layer of whitewash, which is like watered-down paint on a wall that's crumbling and needs structural support. It needs a firm foundation. It needs to be redone, okay? But these texts, like Jeremiah 8, Ezekiel 13, they, they point out we've tapped into an ancient longing, And if you pick up your Old Testament, you know, the first of the year, and you start reading again, you know, chronological Bible, you immediately find out the people of God, the Hebrews, the Jews, they had a history of conflict, thousands of years of conflict, right? I mean, from from Abraham, the very first Jew onward, it's like conflict with the Canaanites, conflict with the Philistines, conflict with the Egyptians, conflict with the Babylonians, conflict with the Persians. You come to the time of Messiah and that 400, conflict with the Romans, Conflict, conflict, conflict. They had ridiculously bad leadership most of the time, which created internal conflict. They had a history of civil wars, and the nation actually divided, you know, 10 northern tribes, two southern tribes, and they're like, well, we'll have different kings and different capitals and different cities, and you do your thing and we'll do our thing. And they hated each other. And simultaneously and thankfully, many of them realized that personal and corporate sin was adding another layer of conflict because they're like, we're not even at peace with God. We may have the right temple in the right city, and they got the wrong one, but we are not people at peace with God because of our brokenness. And so a common refrain of the Old Testament is people just crying out to God, God, be merciful. God, send a Messiah who would bring us peace. And I want to bring you to this ancient longing and just overview a few verses with you just so you get a a flavor for this. Isaiah 9-6, in the middle of a familiar text of Scripture to many of you, But God says, I'll send my Messiah who will be, and one of those famous names there is Prince of Peace. And of his kingdom and of his peace, there will be no end. God's saying when the Messiah comes, he will be peace and he will bring peace that will never, ever end. And people are like, yes, that's what we need. Isaiah 32, and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust Forever, my people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And that's what I mean. You hear the shalom, right? It's quiet, it's peace, 
It's tranquility. It's harmony. It's repaired relationships. It's going to be the effect of the righteousness of Messiah. You got this amazing text in Isaiah 11 that many of you are probably familiar with, and you know theologians disagree exactly when is this going to happen. But he portrays this kingdom of Messiah that's coming, and he literally says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the lion with the calf, and the bear with the cow, and infants will play at the hole of the adder or the cobra, because everything will be restored. Everything will be put back the way it was meant to be. Everything will be at peace. Isaiah 55, 12, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Isaiah 66, 12, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her, my people, like a river. This is where the song, when peace like a river attendeth my way, comes from this text. A few other texts speak of a a more internal peace, like Ezekiel 37, where God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, messianic expectations. Now, this all brings us to the first chapters of the Gospels. And I think Richard may even have mentioned this in worship, but when the angels first appeared, two shepherds, ironically, this declaration was, Behold, we bring you good news, which shall be peace. And interestingly enough, not just for the Jews, but for all the peoples of the earth. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The Messiah is born. And it makes sense that there would be peace and goodwill because this is what the Old Testament promised. The Prince of Peace, when he comes, will bring peace. But I pause, and as we've been doing, just ask, okay, so in what sense did the Messiah, who is the historic figure, Jesus of Nazareth, in what sense did he bring peace in his first advent? No serious recollection of history can recast Jesus of Nazareth as some kind of, you know, global, societal, or environmental peacemaker. And actually, in his first advent, Jesus wasn't the peacemaker that Israel wanted. He was the peacemaker that Israel and the rest of the world needed. Because he didn't come and say, okay, what's the peace you want? Pursuing peace as an end to itself. Oh, you want peace with the Romans. Okay, well, I'll smash the Romans. Now you got peace. Well, we also have problems with our religious, religious leaders. Well, I'll take them out too. Well, we also have problems with ourselves. Well, I can't help you there, you know. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can save you, but you're going to continue to have problems till you're home forever, okay? Um, so there is a fulfillment in Jesus, but it's not exactly what people thought it would be in the first advent, So let me go to the already and not yet and just show you what Jesus did do, what Jesus will do, and then just wrap up with an application for you. So what Jesus did do is that he focused on the kind of peace that you and I need more than any other kind of peace, and that is internal, like soul peace with God. Some of you know people that you would look at their external circumstances and you'd say, 
they're healthy, they're wealthy, they're well-liked. It just seems like they don't have conflict in their lives the way that other people have conflict in their lives. And yet, you would say, I know this person, and they are a mess. Emotionally, they're needy. They always feel internal conflict. And so you know, my point is, you know that the mere presence of physical peace or the appearance of peace does not bring the kind of peace that when you're home by yourself with your own darkest thoughts, you're like, I'm not doing well. And everyone else thinks I am. You know what I'm talking about? Whether you've experienced or you know someone, you know what I'm talking about. So Jesus comes, and in the first advent, he's like, I need to deal with that kind of conflict, that kind of unrest. Because the reality is your sin has created enmity. It's created hostility between you and God. And unless that gets made right, no other peace will provide the ultimate kind of peace that you need. And in fact, Peace is dangerous. External peace is dangerous apart from internal peace because you can feel like I've got everything I want. I've got everything I need, and you don't, okay? So Isaiah 53, 5, talking about the first advent of Jesus, says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So he's talking about how we had this animosity between us and God because of our sin. And Jesus comes and says, I'll become a baby in a manger in Bethlehem so I can grow up and I can live the life that you should have lived. And I can die the death that you should have died. And say in that death, as we talked about a few weeks ago, put their sin on my record. Put their debt on my ledger and let me pay for it. I mean, to speak more directly to the point, he's like, take the wrath of God that is deserved against sin justly and pour the wrath on me. And that's what the cross of Jesus is about. That's why it's bloody and painful and messy because our sin doesn't just earn, you know, displeasure of like, oh, I'm, I'm disappointed. But anyway, no big deal. Because of the very holy nature of God, the righteous nature of God, the just nature of God, It deserves far worse. And Jesus says, but don't put it on them, put it on me. And this is exactly the teaching of the New Testament as well. Colossians 1, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Ephesians 2.13 puts it like this, but now in Christ Jesus you You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And here's what I love, and here's kind of a conclusion I'm drawing for you, is like all these worldviews of the world are looking at the problem of conflict, and I think with the best of intentions, they're saying, okay, we've figured out what the problem is, who the problem is, so we're going to convert them or silence them, and then everybody else is going to enjoy peace. And what, what every worldview in the world is doing is an outside-in approach to peace. And Jesus comes in his first advent and says, the only true peace can be achieved from inside out. If I can forgive your sin, if I can pay your debt, if I can erase the justice of God that stands against you, And you have eternal and internal soul peace, heart peace, mind peace with God. 
And that is objectively true, and that's your first point. When Jesus came, he gave you objective peace with God. Then we can start saying, okay, how does the gospel work itself out now in my relationships, in my vocation, in all these different layers of culture where I have conflict, inside out? And by the way, the other part of this, the already not yet. The not yet is you do not yet have total peace. You know that. You don't have existential peace in your emotions all the time, in your thoughts all the time, in your finances all the time. But, but here's one of the great hopes of Scripture is that it does clearly promise when the Jesus who gave you internal peace with God, when he comes again, there will be holistic peace, comprehensive, total peace, never to be disturbed again, forever and ever. So what? So last point here, three simple things. So, so what? What do, I, what do I do with this? What do I do with my longings for peace? Well, number one, seek peace in the grace of God. And instead of just going after a particular worldview or another, a particular politic or another, slicing and dicing our society up into all these conflicting ideas, conflicting values, you just say, I want peace, God, in your grace. This is something like Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Remember I said I'd come back to this, but what is he saying? He's saying peace is a byproduct of a relationship with God. If you go after peace, it's like grasping for the wind. It's like finding the end of the rainbow. And the more you move toward it, the more it moves away from you. But if you go after God, you go after Christ, the author of peace, the prince of peace, instead of looking to your circumstances for peace or looking to a particular person and their affirmation for peace, if you go after Christ and he is your focus and he is your aim and he is your goal, God promises You'll be in perfect peace if your mind is stayed on Christ, authoring peace in your life. And I picture it almost like being in the eye of a hurricane. Because, you know, the Bible doesn't say, hey, trust God, and he's going to get rid of all the circumstances in your life that could possibly bring unrest. Your marriage is going to be phenomenal. No conflict there. Your job, just it's looking up. Your finances, fantastic. You know that isn't true. But what if... You know, you're in the middle of the storm and there's all this churning and noise and destruction around you and you're like in the eye of the hurricane. And you can see it and it's affecting you and, you're, you know, the water's rising. And I just think being in the hands of Jesus is an even better picture than being in the eye of the hurricane, being in the middle of the storm and being like, it's weird because stuff's falling apart and it hurts and I lament and I weep, and I feel that, and I'm angsty sometimes, but I also know God's got me, and I'm seeking my peace in his grace. So seek peace in the grace of God. Number two, be a peacemaker. Don't fake peace. Don't settle for a superficial, temporary peace that's an outside-in kind of peace, but say, if God is working peace in my life through Jesus Christ and he calls me to be a peacemaker, then I'm going to go in my relationships, in my workplace, in my community, and I'm going to try to give other people that free gift of that inside-out, real shalom. Okay, and I say don't, don't fake peace. The idea of Christianity is not that we just simply like roll over to culture and just be like, oh yeah, we agree with you now. 
Well, we don't. And bringing the, the truth and the grace of the gospel to bear on people's lives is the only way they're going to truly experience God's peace, so be that kind of peacemaker. And then finally, walk in the hope of future peace. And this has become one of the practices of my life that has been incredibly helpful through a hard year of like business losses and relationships and just COVID and all the drama around politics and race. And, you know, if you're a pastor right now, you can't say the right thing about race because whatever you say, half the people are going to be mad at you and they send you emails all the time. And they're just like, I just, I disagree with you. I think you're wrong. Um, And it's hard to have that kind of peace. But I say, walk in the hope of that future peace. So what I'm trying to let, let God do in my life is when conflict happens, when things happen in my life that steal shalom, I look forward to this day and say, this is creating in me right now, God, a deeper longing for what you promised to do. So instead of just getting angry, frustrated, angsty, I'm going to let the current conflict and disruption, the loss of serenity, the noise, I want it to drive me more deeply in love with Christ so that I can experience his future peace now. And it works because God works in us and for us. So let Jesus define and deeply satisfy your longings for peace, true peace.